Let's bow before the Lord together. Oh God, indeed you are indescribable, unchangeable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You know the depths of my heart. You love me the same. Oh God, we ask that you would receive today our worship of the attentive heart that we give to you. We ask, Lord, that you might take all of it, that you would use your word and prosper it in the fertile field of our hearts, yield it up to you. As a result, Lord, we ask to be changed by the word of God through the ministry of your spirit. We open ourselves to your truth today, and we ask, Lord, that as a result of this, we will not only learn something from the scriptures and something about ourselves and elevate the name of Jesus Christ, but also, Lord, that we might be able to see how you have made life such that it only works when you are in the place that you are rightfully supposed to be. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to the book of Colossians, and uh, I'm going to need quite a bit of uh, uh, audiovisual support with this. Uh, I have one slide that's a little busy that we'll get to here in just a little bit. But the book of Colossians is one of the prison epistles, and I wanted to take you through some of this. The uh, little land of Colossae, the little town of Colossae, is in a valley. And in this valley, some interesting things happened. In fact, heresies arose within the first century after Christ. It's amazing that Jesus taught what he did to the 12, and they went out and established churches, and their uh, subjugants uh, established churches as well. And within a few years, the gospel was eroded, the Christian life was messed up, philosophies entered in, and people couldn't figure out how to conduct this thing called the gospel. A lot of what we have in Paul's epistles are correctives. So what we see in a book like Colossians is, in one sense, what's wrong. But what was wrong gives us the opportunity to see how Paul corrected it and made it into what's right. In a very real sense, when somebody goes to a crime scene and may take an imprint of a tire track or a footprint or something like that, they take the negative of that. They'll pour in some sort of plaster and pull it out and get the actual texture of it. It's a reverse texture. It's not a tire. It's something that would fit into a tire print, reflecting that. So what we see in Colossians is a problem, a problem to be corrected. Interestingly, most of the problems of the New Testament and for that matter of the Old Testament, are our problems. As we course through the Pentateuch together this weekend, you keep seeing Israel do these things and, and you want to hold your head and say, oh my, can't they figure that out? They just came through the Red Sea and a couple of days later, they're complaining and murmuring and going up against Moses and saying, let's go back to Egypt. And, and you, you want to say, you dummies, how could you say that? Well, but for the grace of God about which we sang, there go I. I do the same things over and over and over again. I hear the word of God. I know it's true. And I place something else into its place. So we're going to see this happen in Colossians. And we're going to see Paul correct it. Now, Paul can't go there himself to do what he did, for instance, at Corinth or Ephesus, where he went and he stayed for a protracted period of time, where he could then teach all the elders and have developmental meetings and stand up in, in the marketplaces and correct the heresies and have uh, processes with that, schools with that. In this, he has to write it, and he's going to write a single letter. Next slide, if you would, please. Uh, Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ. 
So if that's the, the subject of it, what was wrong with Colossae? They did not see this. They saw Jesus as an option. They were very syncretistic. In other words, anything will go. It would be like if you went off to a university and you studied Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Confucianism and atheism and whateverism, and Jesus was just another option, take him or leave him. Well, the creation has been made such that that is not an option. If you had created a universe, you would probably not give the option for yourself to become simply optional. What we see in Colossae is, is this same process going on. Next slide, please. Um, this is up in Asia Minor. Uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea, uh, the, uh, the island of Crete right up in there. Colossae, if you go to the next slide, is going to be seen in a little bit greater detail. And you see the names of some of the cities that we're familiar with. Uh, the island of Patmos, where John had the revelation. Sardis and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Ephesus. Some of the, the uh, other towns that received scriptures. Some of the towns that received the letters in the second and third chapters of Revelation. And so this is it. This is it. Uh, it's right next to Laodicea, uh, right around the corner from some of the other areas. We might even call this Heretic Valley. Because the Lycus River going down there carried all sorts of, of floating mistruths and poor um, constructed philosophies. There were some real problems. Next slide, please. Um, this is my busy slide, so bear with me. We'll get through all this. This is just going to put the whole thing in perspective. And this is, as you can understand, this is the perspective of a more of a teacher than a preacher. But these are the New Testament epistles in uh, relationship to the, the Gospels, as you can see there. The first Gospel, Matthew. Um, in this particular rendition, Mark is given later. I've come to believe that Mark was probably written earlier with that. But the MJ1, MJ2, and MJ3 up here are Paul's missionary journeys. Those are the ones that are uh, uh, rendered in the book of Acts. We see it starting in, in chapter 13 or so. Um, the fourth missionary journey to Spain is not listed in Acts, but he refers to that in his uh, epistles and his other writings. Uh, go forward, if you would, please. And we're just going to populate this uh, and just press it several times, if you would, please. So on the first journey, he writes Galatians. On the second journey, he writes First and Second Thessalonians. Press it a couple more times, if you would, please. On the third journey, he writes First and Second Corinthians, Romans, and then in between this, he is imprisoned. So PR1 is his first imprisonment. So after these, these uh, three journeys, Paul's put in prison. He's taken to Caesarea. He appeals to Caesar, as you recall, and he's taken on to Rome where he's imprisoned there. While he's in prison, he's going to write these four uh, epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And there are quite a few similarities, especially between Ephesians and Colossians. And we get the sense that he was probably in there with some time to, to think about certain things. In fact, all the prison epistles, all four of these, reflect something about Christ. The supremacy of Christ, the unity of Christ, the uh, forgiveness of Christ are all reflected in this. So what's Paul doing in prison? He's thinking about Jesus. He's thinking about this one that met him in Acts 9 and said, Who are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? Subsequent to that, he writes the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and, and Titus after that. So you can see the prison epistles. So we're going to talk about Christ and his church, Christ and the cross. The gospel is in Romans. The Romans uh, um, were believers, but they received many important things about what he describes as the obedience of the faith. It's a bookend. Starts the book of Romans out and ends the book of Romans with this phrase, the obedience of the faith. 
What we understand is if you have this faith, you will obey in a certain way. It's all about righteousness, that we need it, that we don't have it, and we get it by imputation. With that righteousness, we make decisions and we live this particular life. Next, if you would, please. Now, these prison epistles, this is not an actual photograph. This is a woodcut of, of Paul in there teaching one of the fellows that came to visit him. Next, if you would, please. And we'll see some of these. Why call them prison epistles? Well, all of them refer to Paul's bonds while he's in there, chained in there. And there were different forms of these things, but in essence, they were shackles. And of course, he had a captive guard there that was uh, charged with keeping him there in prison. And so he had an audience that he could give the gospel to. Some of them, we think, even became believers. Next, please. So who carries these letters? Three guys are involved in carrying them. One is this fellow... Tychicus or Tuchikos, or many people have uh, pronounced this. I think Chuck Swindoll calls him Tychicus. Sounds so funny to me. Hard to call him into dinner. Tychicus, Tychicus. Very, very difficult for me. He carried both Ephesians and Colossians, as uh, described in each, and he was accompanied by Onesimus. And we know Onesimus. He was this slave that was uh, belonging to Philemon, escaped, and encountered Paul, became a believer, and Paul writes back and says, listen, this is our brother in Christ. Things are different now. You can't just put this guy in jail for being an escaped slave. Things are different. He probably carried the epistle to Philemon when he returned to his master, although that's not specifically mentioned. And this last guy is, is named Epaphroditus, probably the same person as Epaphras or Epaphras. Uh, it's just two different ways of saying this. Um, uh, very, very common for the Greek and the Roman styles of this to have a little ending to it. Uh, we do some of that thing, that same kind of thing. We'll put a little diminutive ending or a, um, a familiar type of an ending to the same name. He's from Philippi. He carried the Philippian letter back to his people. Next, please. Now, what was Paul's attitude? In Philemon, Paul was hopeful um, that he would be released. He uses the Greek word for hope. In Philippians, Paul was confident. He said, I know that I'll be released. He was probably working on Ephesians, which is a circular letter. Now, what that means is if you get the oldest manuscripts from Ephesus, what's in there is a blank. So where it says Paul the Apostle to the blank is left open there. Now, some of the later manuscripts, we see that included there. In fact, one of them says to the Laodiceans as well. But we, we know some of them say to the Ephesians and some, the oldest ones, are left blank, meaning that it's going to go from one church to the next church to the next church, unlike Corinthians or Galatians or something else like that. So this is a, an open-ended letter. And in Ephesians, he doesn't name any particular people by name the way he does in almost all the other epistles. So he's doing this uh, while he's there, and he gets informed, he uh, gets news of the Colossian heresy. And so he fires off a very quick response. It's shorter than Ephesians, but very similar to Ephesians. So he's thinking about all these great things about Christ. The book of Ephesians considered the loftiest epistle. It talks about things in the heavenlies where we're seated with Christ. We've been lavished with all the, the great blessings in, in the heavenly places. And so while he's got this on his mind, word comes in from his attendants there that went through Colossae, that things are in trouble in Colossae, and they cannot figure out the place that Christ should have. P Philippians probably written just after the above. Next slide, please. These four also show Christ as the head of the church, the example for the church. He is uh, the, the uh, deity uh, of Christ is expressed there and the one who reconciles. Next slide, please. 
So just taking the history, Paul's in prison, probably around A.D. 58. The Philippians hear that Paul's in there, and so they send a gift. Mentions Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. It goes with Epaphras, same guy as Epaphroditus, I think. Epaphras then returns home to Colossae, but before leaving, he encounters, hears of this heresy, this thing that's gone wrong in Colossae. Next slide. Then he and Onesimus reach Paul in prison, carrying this this, uh, thing with them, and Epaphras stays there because he's too sick to go. Tychicus, who was already there, and Onesimus, who came with Epaphras, um, are sent out bearing Colossians, Ephesians, and the little letter of Philemon. Finally, Epaphras stays with Paul. Remember, he was sick. It's possible he was even arrested and imprisoned with him. Maybe he just stayed there in an adjacent area, but uh, he could have just as well been arrested for this. Next slide, please. So some characteristics about Colossians. We use see a number of terms found nowhere else in the New Testament. Next, please. Um, there are no Old Testament references, which is a little unusual for Paul. And Colossians sets forth the fullest explanation because of the heresy. Colossians gives us the fullest explanation of the deity of Christ. So with this background, let's read forward together here. And I want you to get this flavor of what's going on, that he's coming at them from having contemplated nothing but Christ in prison for quite some time. And we're going to see how he constructs his argument. And he's going to go right up to the pinnacle in about verse 18. He says here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth." You almost have to take a breath in the midst of this sentence. It's so long. Ephesians starts out the same way with a very long sentence from verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. Verse 7, just as you learned it, uh, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Now, Paul knows not to come out of the, the uh, gates swinging. He knows if he just comes at them and says, you dirty dogs, some people are just going to put it down and say, I'm not ready for this. I I can't take this from a guy who's already in prison. Uh, Who is Paul after all? They had not seen his face. So he's starting out with some very nice things. He's going to kind of buff them a little and say that they've heard nice things about him. They are grateful for them. They're praying for them. They've heard they're very loving people. And that's a great thing. Nothing wrong with that. For this reason also, verse 9, he says, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask this. Now, this is the substance of his prayer. As you read through the scriptures, it's great to look for purpose statements. Why is he doing this? We pray that you might have this. We are asking God this so that you might conduct yourself in a certain way. So here's one of those, he says. We've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So there's two that's here. The one is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. The second 
is that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I don't know if you've encountered this. Somebody perhaps at work, known to be a Christian, testifies as a Christian, and something in their walk doesn't fit. The people of the world have an especially acute sense of finding those things. Their ears perk up when the bad word is said. They notice when the innuendo slides by. They talk behind somebody's back when so-and-so claims to be a believer, but his life doesn't reflect that. In the later New Testament, the requirements for elders and pastors and deacons are there that they have to have things right in their marriages. They have to have things right in their homes. The reason being, those are the folks that really need them. Those are the folks that really know them. And those are the folks who can really tell if they're just saying it and not believing it. Because what we really believe shows up in our actions. If you believed that it was not worth it to come to church today, you wouldn't be here. There are other things that you could do. The water is gorgeous. The weather is beautiful. What a place. This is paradise for me. I come from a boring city. You know, it's got its benefits, but it's not like here. This is wonderful. So grateful. Grateful for this church. Grateful for Pastor Lee, my friend, and grateful that he's still with us. Grateful for the music. It's, it's hard to get this in the United States. Blesses my heart. And the kids singing with that whole heart, ooh, you can't put that in a bottle and buy it somewhere. That's great stuff. Bless you for that. But here is two that's, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we get the hint, maybe as we're reading, we're starting to detect as well, maybe they're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we're going to find out why in just a moment. As he continues here, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, this is a lot. It's quite a mouthful to say these things. Lots of great stuff in there almost ticking one off after the other, to have this love, to have this walk, to have this knowledge, to have this goodness and all these blessings that go through there, to walk in light. And here's the basis. Here's why. The reason why they get these things is, for he rescued us. And notice, this is past tense. This is not, he is in the process of rescuing us. Nor is it, he is one day going to rescue us, particularly if we act good and smell good and behave nice and walk in a manner worthy of him. Notice this is already past tense. For those of you that have read a little bit in, in uh, the, the academics and understand Greek, this is the tense called the aorist tense. It's a completed, done deal tense. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, domain simply means like a kingdom. The right to rule over darkness is what's talked about here and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Go forward to the next slide, if you would, please. We'll catch up to this. As we see what, what Paul is doing here, he's going to correct this Colossian uh, heresy here. And in application, Christ is going to be put in first place in all things. That's what he's after. Next slide, please. We see these similarities between Ephesians and Colossians. We'll just blast through those. Go forward, please. Uh, the differences between the two, he's going to get very specific and very local in the Colossians. 
polemic, meaning warlike. Next, please. And here's his argument. He writes, to deliver the church this, keep going, responds to the heresy with a dual approach, establishes the supremacy of Christ with a theological basis. If we don't get the theology corrected, then the behavior continues to follow. If you believe it's okay to do certain things, you'll keep doing those certain things. If we find ourselves doing certain things that we don't like, that we're convicted about, we have to go back and say, what is my theology? What am I putting ahead of God as the speaker of truth, as the gospel to which I am attending, by which I am justifying my actions? If I believe that he is who he is, that he created me the way that he did, in fact, he created me to listen to him, to look for authorities in other people to look for authorities in the Word of God. And when we get it, we act accordingly. When I, so when I find myself straying with all this, I've got to ask myself, where did my theology go wrong? Because I put some other God in his place. I let something else tell me something that was seemingly true, like Eve did in the garden. She hears all that stuff and is nodding along, saying, I see the sense of that. It was logical, kind of, rational, kind of, but it didn't turn out. Her action followed what she was led to believe. And disaster came with it. If she was only more theologically sound, if Adam was too, we would have a different pickle to be in today. No, God let it happen. That was God's purpose, that man would fall, and man would then be redeemed, reconciled. We have a better relationship on that basis. But the Colossians, the same way. They're straying. They're far afield. And their theology is showing up in their lives as we move forward. Next slide, please. Well, this is just an old woodcut here that summarizes this whole process, but I, I love this. This is called Berean charts. You can see how it's reflected in how in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and the people are to be filled to the full in him, which is the head, both in faith and love, that we may present every man perfect, verse 20, 28 of this, and that we might stand perfect in chapter 4, verse 12. We're then made meet, we're translated, we're reconciled, we're presented complete, and Christ then is therefore all and in all. The two things that are hid, the riches that are hid, and the uh, uh, glory which is hid with Christ in God. Next slide, please. This is another woodcut that I, I love that's just summarizing the whole epistle. Notice the praying hands that he starts with and the scales of judgment that he's going to use here. Uh, Paul is here in the foreground writing this. I don't know if that's the particular style that he wrote upon there. Probably wasn't. And the two men in the background are probably Epaphras and Tychicus, who are going to carry this on. Next slide, please. The purpose statements, as we talked about, the that's. In verse 12, these are all the things that we read together, listed there. And ultimately, what will happen, every one of these we like. We get strengthened. We're joyful. We bear good fruit. We joyously give thanks to the Father. We have all steadfastness. We're going to buy everything there is on this menu. We're going to purchase every bit of it because we want this to show up in our lives. You might begin to clue, though, if this was already present, Paul wouldn't have to have written to them. How about it was kind of a scary thing to receive a letter from the apostle? Is it a good one or a bad one? Is this in Ephesians or is this some scathing rebuke? And when he writes to the Corinthians, he writes to them twice one 16 chapters, and one 13 chapters. Many churches today will say, well, we want to be like the Corinthians. You know, they had all that stuff that was uh, written to them by Paul. Well, most of what was written to them was to rake them across the coals because they weren't doing it right. 
So what you'd like to have from Paul is just a, a love note. God's blessings upon you. Proud of you, Paul. And some big hefty thing that it took two guys to carry might scare you when it came in. Next slide, please. This is the great transfer that's going on from this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. And the reason why he can do that is he purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Next slide, please. The foundational statements on this, this is because he's done this. This is why he can do this. He is the king to whose kingdom we were transferred. He is our source of redemption. He is the image, and we're going there next, of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is preeminent before all things, the sustainer of all things, the head of his church, the beginning, and the firstborn of the dead. The reason why he is all these things is because this is his character. This is his nature. He doesn't wake up in the morning and decide to be these things. He is these things by virtue of his very existence. Because of this being his existence, when he spoke the universe into existence, it took on his character. And being the head of it all, being the rightful leader of it all, everything in the universe is going to reflect that. We do well when we figure out that I, as one of these things that he created, am at my best. I function and achieve my purpose when I'm completely aligned with this creator. And when I get perpendicular to it, he's placed into this creation things that push me away from that. Pain, difficulty, misery, loss of blessing. Those things wake me up in the middle of the night. We stand before God and say, what am I doing? And where did I go wrong? And how do I get back to where I'm supposed to be? And notice this is all in ending with this one statement, a another purpose statement, our third one here, so that, so that he will come to have first place in everything. Let's ponder that. What does that look like? You ever been in a ministry, been in a situation where it was so clear that the Lord Jesus Christ was in first place? They did everything right. They did it such that every prayer, every dollar, every witness, every person was treated the way Jesus would have treated them. And they never took the glory to themselves. They didn't name things after themselves. They didn't make monuments to themselves. They didn't have huge banners written across, you know, celebrating 900,000 years of great ministry by me. I'm not so sure that that glorifies Christ. Now, their ministries have been around for a long time, and they deserve some glory. They de deserve um, so, some accolades for that. They deserve encouragement for that. But it's all about bringing that to Jesus, bringing that glory to Jesus, as we sang today. To him be glory and honor and blessings and might and riches and power. Why? Because he's the only one. When John opens that scroll, or has that scroll to be opened, there's nobody worthy. And he weeps because he couldn't find anybody. And then strolls the one, the one and only who's worthy and opens the scrolls and they are scrolls of judgment. Those scrolls of judgment make it right in this universe. After those scrolls are done, the justification is about to happen. Well, back to Colossians here. We're going to roll through these as Paul is, is describing this. He's saying he's the one who's done this and here's the basis of it. Verse 15 of chapter one. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is kind of a misnomer. You can't have an image, a visible something, of something that is invisible. Now, we might try to reflect this. If we said, describe beauty, well, you might name a beautiful person or a beautiful place or a beautiful organism or a, a portrait or something like that. 
But he is the image of the invisible God, meaning that that which cannot be seen by man, no man has seen God at any time, by taking on human flesh and being both God and man, he reveals him to us. The book of Hebrews starts, starts out with this, that he has taken on this, this character and made flesh out of what is otherwise God. For by him, I'm sorry, I didn't finish that, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn is not necessarily the first thing that got made. Don't read in this that there was one day God the Father, and he got lonely and said, I think I'll make a son. Didn't happen. Doesn't occur that way. There was always a Father, always the Son, always the Spirit. God does not change. Back in the early church, there was a heresy attached to this, a fellow named Arius, a capable, handsome, speak, uh, wonderful speaking uh, heretic, decided that there was something to be demoted about the nature of Christ, that there was God the Father and Christ was a lower level. A young man, not particularly impressive in character or, or face or uh, speaking presentation, held to his his guns, argued with Arius and came out and said, if Jesus became fully God at some point, then God changes. Done deal. This fellow Athanasius saved the church from four or 500 years of heresy about Christ. The Arian heresy is one of the early things that happened with this. He's not a firstborn as in he was made. The firstborn is a royal term. When the king is getting old and the son of the king is about to take over. He's considered the firstborn, the firstborn in this case of all creation, not just a realm somewhere. So this one it simply means he's got the right to rule. He's in that position that the son of Pharaoh or the son of the king has, who would then have the right to rule everything by virtue of who he is. In this case also, it's because of what he did. He transferred us to his kingdom. He being the firstborn of all creation has this position. 16. For, explaining, by him all things were created. Now this pretty much is the end of the discussion about cosmic evolution. You know, when you talk to those guys, and, and I enjoy this, I, I have conversations about creationism and intelligent design and evolution and evolutionism, which is a different thing, with physicians almost every day. It's, it's a fun discussion if you don't get too hot about it. And I'm always uh, open to, to hear the other side and want to testify about this. The real trouble is the evolutionist says, all right, well, first you take a universe. And then from that life arises. Well, you know, we don't see a lot of universes popping up into existence very much. That's a pretty big first step to start with. One fellow said they, they staged a, a, a comparison between God and the evolutionists. And they said, all right, you take matter and make life out of it. And then you do, do the same. And the evolutionists reached down and grabbed some dirt. And God said, uh-uh, I made that too. <laughs> to start out of nothing and to simply speak it into existence is power. And that's power with a capital P. In fact, after the six days of creation, he was not tired. He rested on the seventh day. I think in part to show that it could be done. If God could rest after six days, you can rest after six days of work. There's a good thing in resting. As we rest, we say God will take care of things on that seventh day. It is a principle that's all through the Old and New Testaments. There's a point at which we don't have to keep working. There's a point at which we have to say God will provide. Nothing wrong with work. Work's a great thing. But too much work is not good for you. And it's not prescribed for us in the scriptures. So 
He's done this. He has this place here. He has made everything in this creation. And in fact, it is made in a certain way. By him, all things were created, again, verse 16, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So every ruler was made by this one. Every authority was made by this one. Every throne was made by this one. And there's a principle there. If you could make all the rulers of the earth, then they would have to answer to you. You know, Billy Graham tells the story. He was walking along with his son one day. They're up in North Carolina, and he stepped into an ant pile. And they weren't fire ants or anything dangerous with all that, but they constructed this huge edifice there, the big ant hill. And he felt so bad. He looked down and he realized, you know, these poor ants are going to have to work for several hours just to remake what I undid in the space of a, of a casual step. And he had this thought, he says, oh, I so wish I could become an ant just for a couple of minutes to explain to them that I didn't really mean to hurt anything. And it dawned on him, that's exactly what the creator did in order to be able to even speak to us. He had to become one of us. So not only has he done all of this and understands what it is on that side of it, but he also understands what it's like to be a weak human being. In his body, he got tired, he got hungry, he thirsted, uh, he slept, he worked hard, um, had concerns, he wept. He did all those things that are human things. We talked about in Hebrews that we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand. In fact, Jesus understands better than anybody else. Do you know that Jesus understands sin? I struggled with this for a while. I, I thought, you know, well, that guilt that we feel, that shame of being caught in sin, that sense of, uh, I wish that I had a resume that was perfect, made all A's on all my exams, never, never missed a single question, went through and trained exactly, took the scalpel and made it exactly the length that it's supposed to be. That'd be wonderful. People could really trust me at that point. There's no one that way. Everybody has had some sin, some shortcoming, some problem somewhere. It's just not going to be. But in his case, even though he never committed it, when he was on the cross, he was abandoned by the Father. The, the great question, the un, unsolvable question, we have it in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabanthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The word is actually very similar to the word for making a sacrifice, to have given something up as a sacrifice. Why have you sacrificed me? He is separated for the, from the Father. Second Corinthians says that he made him to be sin for us, that he endured the cross despising its shame. Why was there shame on the cross? Because they put him to death as if he was transgressing against Rome. But the type of death, as we see from De Deuteronomy, was a scandalous death to be picked up off the, off the earth and stuck onto a cross. In fact, people on the cross died of exposure and bleeding and other issues with all that. It's a horrible, horrible death. But the worst of it, and the reason why he went in just a few hours, is that God the Father, the suffusing force of life, was withdrawn from him. And not only did he know the loss of the Father's blessing, to have had God the Father turn his back on him, but he understood the shame. The Father treated him in that moment as if he himself had committed every sin ever committed and gave him the punishment due for that. Imagine being punished for somebody else's sin, a minor one. 
We might get through that. Imagine being put to death for somebody else's sin. Imagine being put to death for every sin. In his temptation, he got up this close to sin where he could see what was there. Now, I, I struggle with this one too. You know, the devil takes him out and he offers him all these things. He offers him the kingdoms of the earth. He says, okay, all right, I have the kingdoms of the universe that I made, and here are these that you don't have a right to, and you're offering them to me. I, I think as Jesus looked at that, he wasn't particularly terribly tempted. But he understood, he got close to, he knew what it would mean to step across. He could smell and taste and touch the sin and not ever commit it. And then on the cross, it was as if he had passed through that moment and was then being held as guilty for having committed every one of those sins. That is our high priest. That's this one who's transferred us to his kingdom. Well, there's more here. Verse 16 again, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. This is agency. When he spoke them into existence, they came about. First, uh, The first chapter of John tells us there was nothing made that was not made through him. So he is the one and only creator. There is not one atom, not one subatomic particle in this universe that he did not make. So agency is completely his. But with agency comes a right. And with this, this describes this. All things have been created through him and for him. All things, traffic lights, garbage cans, hair clippings, toenails, old glasses that you can't use? The answer is yes. All things, all matter, all non-material existence in the universe. Every creature, every person. There is not one rogue particle in this universe that is not subject to his headship. He has a right to wipe them out, change them, redo them, reuse them, or realign them any way that he wants to, because he made them. Now, I, I love to tease about this. You know, when you make your universe, you and God can sit and maybe one day compare notes, how you think things ought to be. I talked to one physician, he says, oh, I, you know, I, I could never believe in a God that would let children get cancer and die from it. So I said, well, you know, what are the criteria that God would have to meet for you to believe in him? That not, is not much of a God that's going to say, oh, you don't like that? Okay, I'll stop. I'll change. And what we understand of that, and we wrestle with those things, and we do hate that. Every one of us hates that. It's because we can't see. We say, well, either he's not powerful enough to take care of that, or he's not good enough to take care of that, or he's not there at all. The reality is, and you've seen this in your life, you've had evil things happen to you. Something squashed, something got torn up, somebody walked away from you, somebody hurt you. And if you can see it, you look back and you say, you know, at the time it hurt very bad. And it changed me. And it made me mad. It made me question maybe even God's existence, what he was doing with all this. But as time moves forward, sometimes we, we get a clue. God used that. God shut that door to open this one. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be through this door today. And when we do, we can temporally look back and praise him. 
I, I contend that when we're in glory, we're going to sit there with him and we're going to go and visit with other people. We'll be reconciling probably for the first 100,000 years. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I cut you off at that light. I'm sorry I didn't come to visit you. You know, for 100,000 years, we'll do that. And then we'll go, go around and we'll tell stories. How was it that this happened, that you got hurt? One of my great heroes is Johnny Erickson Tata. She just got kind of mistreated in the United States. She uh, composed a beautiful song, and it was actually up for a Grammy or an Oscar or something like that. I think it was a Grammy. And people realized, oh, oh this is a, an evangelical person. This is a song about God. We can't have that any longer and, and hurt her in the process. I, I hurt for her. I look at her and I think, you know, she's in a wheelchair, has been there since 17, 17. It's a lot of life. She's been in it more than 40 years. I was about 17 when this happened to her. And I've heard her interviewed a couple times, and the interviewees, uh, interviewers always say the same things. You know, well, are you dreaming about getting out of your wheelchair? Did you ask God? Were you mad at God? And she's, you know, got some stock answers for that. They said, well, you're, are you looking forward to heaven? She says, oh, yeah. You mean so that you can have legs and do all that kind of stuff? Because she was an athlete. She was a tomboy. And she says, you know, for about a year or so, I, I did. But that's not really what heaven's all about. What I look forward to in heaven is having a pure heart. She says, and I look at this now. You'd think that 40 years in a wheelchair would warrant resentment. I look back at this now, and I see what God has done in me, what God has done through me for these years. And if I was standing at the side of the water today, she says, with a flat, straight face, credible, believable, I'm jumping. I'm going to break my neck. Because it's not worth having an intact neck to miss all this that God has done for me. I know he did this for me. I'm blown away by that. I don't think I have that courage. I don't think I could have handled that or God might have given that to me. She could. And she sees the value of that. Well, she understands that even a broken neck has its purpose in God's kingdom. And when she attends to that purpose, great blessing happens. We think, oh, no, this, this is the way I want to do it. This, this was my prayer for a while. Oh, God. Why don't you make me uh, incredibly physically fit, strong, powerful? Maybe I could be, well, handsome too, but uh, maybe I could be the Super Bowl MVP. And then as I'm saying, I'm going to Disney World, I could say, oh, and, and God bless you all too. So I could maybe, you know, add my accolades, you know, my endorsement to the things of God. It would really help the kingdom of God. Thus far, that prayer is not coming true. Because what's in that prayer, and it's a great thing that he did not answer it that way, is glorification of me, for which I'll give him a tip. That's not what he's after. In fact, I've been glorified in my life. Being in medicine, you know, people give you awards and people say great things about you. And it's wonderful. It's, it is, it's a blessing. It is a sweet thing to have the intimacy with people, to understand what's wrong with their body, to engage yourself with it, to go into the catheterization laboratory and get blood all over you and all over them and work through this and have them better as a result. It's, it's much better when they're better. It's not as much fun when they don't get better, and nothing in medicine is perfect. But it's a very sweet relationship that comes with that. But most of that is simply that I've figured out how God made it, how God gave us opportunities and scalpels and procedures and radiation and things like that that we can use to improve a certain situation in somebody who's going to die anyhow. We think that's a tremendous enterprise. Well, the best of it is when we align with the purposes of God.
Even better is when it opens the door for us to say, you know, we got you through this time. Who knows when the next time is going to be? I might, in fact, precede you. And so doing it puts us all in perspective. When it's in God's perspective and where he is in his rightful place, no matter what the outcome is, whether it's a broken neck or a patient that doesn't make it or glorious rescue, if it's in God's position where he is in first place, it makes sense and it blesses us no matter what the outcome. Continuing in Colossians, all things have been created through him and all things have been created for him. He is before all things. Now, yes, in a temporal time sense, he is before all things. But that's not what this means. This means that he stands before all things. He goes to the front of every line. He is the best at absolutely everything. You know, our, our society loves Superman. I, I still, I, I get thrilled with this. I, I watched the old Superman with Christopher Reeve with the curl coming down on his forehead. And when the helicopter comes off the, the side there and he pulls his shirt back and the S is there and flies up and gets that thing, whew, that's so great. I, I'm the same way when they portray healings and they do this at our Christmas pageant and the Easter pageant and all that. And, and I know they're acting, but just to realize that that really happened, that that one man, and this kind of flesh that you and I understand had a woman grab his cloak and was healed after 12 years of hemorrhage to be able to touch the blind man, to be able to say to the guy, take up your pallet and walk. And he leaps up. Oh, I wish I'd been there. I've seen some nifty things in medicine, but nothing like that. Nothing even close. That's this capacity. That's who he is. That's how he controls his creation. He has absolutely that level of control. Nobody can do that. Now, when Paul and Peter healed, they healed in his name. He never healed in the name of Peter. Jesus never healed in the name of Paul. But when they did, always in the name of Jesus, glorifying him as the one in first place. So he is before all things in position with all this. And in him, all things hold together. It's an interesting word, you know, just to, to stand together, to, to consist. We know that in the universe, the uh, atom is the basic building block of matter. Now, granted, there's some subatomic particles that, uh, you know, are put together the top, the bottom, the neutrinos, all sorts of nifty things are actually in the atom. But the atom is this basic building block, most of which is space. You know, there's a, a, um, a nucleus with the protons and the neutrons in there. And the electrons then spin around it. In fact, they spin just under the speed of light. They have to do it exactly right that because there's a tight balance in every atom, every single atom. Because you know what happens with positive and negative, they would normally crash into each other. They're attracted with this. But we don't know why the positives are all stuck together in the center of the nucleus. We've got some great theories, but we can't do that. We can't send another proton in without creating usually some major disasters. We can make some things like heavy water and all that kind of stuff, but it is a very complex, very difficult process and not something that happens routinely. You saw what happened with the atomic bomb. When you take the power of the atom and you just unleash it a little bit, the mushroom cloud is the kind of power that's in one atom. It said that there's enough power in the atoms in a pencil to destroy the earth twice in a pencil. Now that's some power. We might wonder, how did it get in there in the beginning? Now maybe it did just invent itself. 
with all the rest of the universe. I think that it was put in there by this one. And this holding together is something that the sun does continuously, sustains the existence of the universe, keeps every atom intact, keeps everything going, keeps all of life, all the, the food chain, everything, the, the water cycle, everything continues with all this, that the sun continues to express out heat and give us all the things that it, it does, all from the action, from the ministry of the sun. But it doesn't stop there. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head. That's the only position that he has. The only uh, position is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that. So here's our fourth so that statement. And we're going to conclude with this. This is what my so that is. I came here this weekend to teach the Bible to these Fantastic people we had such a great time. And I'm bringing you the word of God today so that we all get this together. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He just won't take second. He won't fit in second. He doesn't function in second or third or 18th or 80th. He just doesn't go there. He's either in first place or not at all. And the things that we put in first place often ourselves, other people that we love, other gods that we adore, addictions, pleasures, whatever they might be, things that we want to have that become our new gods. They promise us a gospel. I'll take care of you. I'll be there when you hurt. I'll sustain you. I'll be around when you need something. That's what these false gods say. May they be alcohol or a substance or fame or reputation or illicit physical activity, whatever it is. It sings to us and says, yeah, I'll, I'll do all this. I'll be a good God to you. And you know this, sin in that form always carries us farther than we ever wanted to go. When we're tolerating it, we'll go farther. We'll say, well, I'll do this much. It's neutral. I'll just do this much. But it takes us longer. It holds us there longer than we wanted to stay. And it costs us so much more than we were ever willing to pay for. It cheats on us every time. Every false God is exactly that. It'll tell you the truth. It'll give you a little something. And many people will adhere to it. They'll become allegiant to it. They'll become loyal to it. They'll devote themselves to it. They'll, they'll love it with their whole heart and even give their lives for it. I can't tell you the number of people that I've seen who've said, I've stopped heroin, I've stopped cocaine, I've stopped this, but I can't stop that. Well, that's your God. Let me ask you, where are the things in your life where Christ is in first place. Is he in first place in your marriage? Does your marriage look that way? Does your spouse know that? Do your children know that? The answer there is probably already they do. Do your neighbors know that Christ is in first place in your marriage? What about your ministry? And, and you don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be Pastor Lee. You don't have to be Pastor Clinton. You have a ministry. You have a ministry of reconciliation. You can pray for other people. You can give the gospel to your neighbors, to your, your co-workers, to your children. Is Christ in first place there? Because he just won't go anywhere else. When he is in first place, something happens to us. We know it. You encounter these people. They're a breath of heaven. We breathe the air that they exhale and we say, mm, so familiar to me. I know that smell. It's happened before. When I was obeying God and I was doing this and I was in a ministry and he opened a door and wow, his spirit moved in a way that I never guessed. I was a missionary to Ukraine and 
uh, twice while I was there, the doctors said, you know, if, if we gather all of the doctors together, do you think you would give us the gospel? <laughs> would I? Of course I would. Never happened to be in the United States. People stop you on the street, say, you look like a Westerner. Tell me about Jesus. Amazing. Now, is there an obedience? Uh, you know, God calls us to go. We, we went, we got the funds, and we went over there, not knowing what was going to happen. But Jesus was in first place. It happens a lot in the mission field. It happens a lot to us when we have carved off those things that are potential candidates for being God. And the way we deal with those things is we hack them to death. We crucify those false gods. We speak the truth about them. We treat them the way the Father treated the Son. We turn our back on them. We embarrass them. We crucify them, and we put them in the ground. Difference being, they don't rise up again when we've really crucified them appropriately. Paul's writing this to the Colossians because they missed it. They had everything wrong about Jesus. No, he was their savior, and they were loving people, and they were kind of getting along and, and bebopping through all this, but they had a problem. They thought Jesus was an option, that he could you know, be taken or left with all this. Not so. Life has been rigged. Life has turned out so that if you pursue any other first place thing, it will fail. It will misery generate. It will stop at some point and it will bite you. It might even cause your death. Is there an area where he needs to be first place? There are areas in my life where he needs to be more in first place. Many times when the Spirit of God works on us, whether you're preaching or hearing, we know what that thing is. Sometimes we even have a name for it. The Spirit of God dredges that up and it stands right before our eyes. It's when they tell the preacher, you're preaching to me. It's not my goal. I'm preaching to me today. Let's pray together. Oh God, we recognize and gladly assent that you as the creator, you as the sustainer, you as the head of the church, the rightful ruler, that you having transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to your kingdom, you need to be in first place. We need to have you in first place. The so Lord, we confess that in many ways we transgress that. We've taken other options and put you off to the side, equating other things to a position that they never deserved, to the position that you alone deserve. Lord, forgive us for having done so, for having bought into what the false gods and what the world has sung to us and told us was true when we knew better. Well, we thank you that your word does its work in us. It teaches us your position, your nature, your truth, your blessing, and your position. Lord, I pray that there might be somebody here who's struggling with something in which some other entity is sitting on your rightful throne. Lord, may we, through the power of your Spirit, through the work of the Word of God, dethrone that false God. Lord, as well, I pray that if there's someone here who's never made Jesus Lord and Savior, that that person would realize that that's why you came, you paid for sin, that you offer eternal life for free. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to be perfect in everything. We simply believe, trust in you, and you take over. And when you take over and give us eternal life, you build up in us that which yearns to have you in that place. Lord, thank you for the blessing of being here with these wonderful people, with your church, 
with those who are honoring you with worship and song. Lord, I ask your continued blessing on this church. May we continue to have a great fellowship in the months and years to come. This we pray not only in Jesus' name, but for his sake, and that he might indeed be in first place. In his name we pray, amen.